And then I turned and I was like, Motherfucking Valda! Welcome to episode 12 of Feather and Mountain Podcast. I'm your host, veteran reader, first time watcher, like everyone else on the fucking planet, Delusions of Grendel. With me, as always, is my never reader and fabulous co host, Virgil. Virg, how you doing? Pretty good. Just pulling all the cat hair off of me from your lovely cat. So it's been a minute since we've been able to record. I think uh, both of us have unfortunately had uh, some busy life stuff come up. But that being said, we've watched the episodes. Uh, I don't know how many watches I'm on now. Six, seven, a dozen. Who's to say? Um, But Verge has been traveling like crazy, managing to sneak some time in to watch the episodes We've talked about uh, one, two, and three, which you watched in a clump. Yeah. Uh, and and I think your you'd indicated that your prediction for the dragon had remained the same mm-hmm. after watching those first three episodes. All the way through five. Okay, <laughs> so we're consistent. All right, so today we are breaking down and going through episode two, Shadows Waiting, which is um, the translation from the old tongue of Shadar Logoth, as we learn in the episode. Um, So before we kind of break down this uh, episode scene by scene and get your thoughts, do you recall your kind of immediate reaction to this episode, which had a different tone than the first one, right? The first one is we're all in the village, we're hanging out. This one is we are on the road, we're moving, we're getting into like this traveling pattern, and then you know, shit hits the fan when Maureen is injured and can't really take care of the crew. And of course we leave with everyone separated um, at the end of the episode. So kind of initial thoughts, impressions. Yeah. Very dark, obviously. Right. Like everybody, everybody leans on each other throughout the first episode. Everything's all about how, you know, it's um, whether that's, Marine land, whether and then whether it's the the five of them, they're leaning on each other, and it's all about strength and unity. And then at the end, it's you see that everyone's going to get pushed in their own direction. And I say it in their own direction because I I genuinely feel like um, you know the the way that the two were separated, like so Nynaeve, for example, on her own almost makes sense. She's obviously the strongest of the pack, but then the two sets that are separated aren't the regular two sets of groups. So people that would you know normally so Egwene and uh, Rand would usually lean on each other. Now they're separated, right? So I, I think that that's really well done in the show to kind of push everyone another direction. And uh, the darkness thing was, I found it very, I'm going to say, I, I found it very predictable that they were going to get split that way. It was yeah, it was easy to see that one coming because everything was just hunky-dory. And you're like, okay, hey, you're never going to build um, characters if they're in a group of five at all times, right? And you're never going to build characters if people are in a, a comfortable setting. So... Kind of was waiting for them to split up, but it was a nice episode. It was. Yeah. So the the episode starts with, I don't want to like go too much into further episodes, but I the opening of this episode was chilling to me. We are uh, in the White Cloak camp, and we have the little. Um, is it okay to call it a servant boy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who brings um, you know the the silver tray to child Valda, Eamon Valda, who is sitting down and brings over this this tray with a bird on it. 
Um, and we see Eamon Valda and he's talking. Is he talking to the camera? Is he talking to someone else? And then, of course, we see from some of the official pictures that it's the Aes Sedai, the yellow sister that he's talking to. And we watch him devour this bird and then his mouth starts bleeding because the bird is consumed whole. So it's got like the beak, the bones and everything. And it's doesn't hurt to consume, but it does like cut your mouth. And so, you know, the bird in real life is yellow. This is actually like, it's a thing in the world where this really happens. I can't remember the name of the bird, but this is a real thing that can happen in some countries. And uh, typically if you're eating this bird in public, you would like shield your face. Apparently it's featured in the show Succession, which I haven't seen, but outlawed in many, many countries, including Canada. <laughs> um, but you're supposed to hide your um, face because it's shameful to eat this beautiful songbird. You have to like gouge its eyes out and like it thinks it's in darkness. So it just eats and like plumps itself up and then is killed in this really horrible way and then consumed um so it's shameful it's a shameful thing of, of god so it's it's so interesting to see a child of the light eat it and enjoy eating it and talk about how much he enjoys eating it to this Aes Sedai yellow sister who's strapped being burned at the stake while he's talking to her um and then of course we see the yellow sister has her hands cut off we see him remove the ring and take that as his trophy. And we see him toast her as she's getting toasted. He's got seven rings. Like he's, you know, trying to be sore on or some mm -hmm. sick fuck collecting all the, all the rings of the one power. I was going to say Pokemon. But... Yeah. <laughs> Ash catch him. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of how this like episode two opens. Um, kind of thoughts on, on that. Like it's not Game of Thrones, but like, what the fuck did that tone do for you? Yeah, I mean, it sadly comes down to the same thing, and like it does in so many shows, it's religion, right? Religion is the cause of the most wars we've ever had. That's just how it is. It's the cause of most things that have ever happened. And don't get me wrong, I'm not going to get into religion at a whole or anything like that. But it's just a showcase of good versus wrong and different views and like philosophical nature of religion. That's what it is. Like he can do no wrong because he believes what he is doing is so right. And you just, the, the bird thing, I did not get as deep into that as you did by any means. I, I, I did not know that, but like having heard that, it's just the biggest thing for me, the largest takeaway was the transfer of power and how right until the end of this Aes Sedai's life, everything was about showcasing how she had none. I've taken your hands, I've I've taken your ring, I've taken everything from you, you are tied up, you're going to watch me, you're going to listen to me, you're going to hear everything I have to say, and you will get nothing from me. So it's this power shift, so call it what you want, which is sadly what a lot of religious <laughs> wars are based on, is the power of something. And uh, yeah, it, it was dark. I love how they're in white. Like, you know, like it's showcasing, we're going to shine the lightness on the world, and we're going to make things better, and you're in the wrong. And I really kind of hope from this as a foreshadowing for myself, I remember telling Lindsay this, is that I hope we do see a darker side of the Aes Sedai because I want to understand where this came from. Was it just fear-based only? You know, something new, like you go to every comic book in human history, right? Superman, save the world, but people are scared of him because he's different. And that's just it. So I want to understand that. But yeah, this was a shocking opening and uh, having him eat that bird and just talk and just how everything was so clean and uh, 
just it, there's just so many different movies and different genres that you've seen where cleanliness is next to godliness right so yeah that was definitely a shocking opening anything any thoughts on why or how the Aes Sedai wasn't channeling to get free <clears throat> once again we talked a lot about that the rules are really messed up still I don't get that and as the as you get into like episode five you're starting to or even like three you're starting to understand there's some that are bending the rules and so that was where I think maybe this is coming from. Someone bent the rules too far, and that's why this light is coming, though. The white cloaks are coming. But um, how they don't defend themselves, I don't get it. There's nothing supernatural that I've seen yet in all five episodes from these guys. They have swords. And when you watch, like, we'll talk later, of the other fight scenes and stuff like that, you just see how, you know, power and the, the one power is so strong comparatively, right? It's one versus 30, but some reason they just get ass kicked every single time by these guys seven of them in a row so i, I don't know what's unsuspecting they're not that sneaky i don't know they're bright white and gold <laughs> they're like yeah it's a puzzle so from there we went into um the first title sequence that we saw with the weaves and like there's these seven women we've talked a little bit on on this podcast about the seven ajas at least with the colors when we saw the concept art and some of the still images of all um the Aes Sedai and the different dresses in the hall so we've seen that from the trailer and stuff and i think we've paused and just kind of walked through the colors haven't talked about what they meant but in the op- in the title sequence now we have these weaves being woven and then these seven women kind of being um, strung, I guess. And anyway, uh, initial impressions of title sequence. The only one real large thing that comes to me is the color red is hilarious because it's anger, right? Red is always considered to be anger. It's what you get a bull's attention with. And I mean, it's not quite to this sequence, but the eye Sedai that's red is obviously the most angry. So I'm trying to like base in my head if, you know, because green, I guess, is like Mother Nature. It heals the wor- world, so they're a healing type. But then you have blue and yellow that I have no clue yet. So those are kind of my only real takeaways from that. Perfect. And then uh, we open up on our uh, escapees. So the six of them, Moraine, Land, Perrin, Egwene, Matt, Rand, uh, riding to Terran Ferry. And, uh, you know, Moraine wakes up this this guy, the Ferry Master, and, you know, basically says, get us the fuck across the river. Trollocs are coming, my dude. And he's like, oh, you don't seem like a woman who hears no very often. And she says, no, I certainly am not. So get us across. We're not waiting for your damn son to get his ass down here. And then they jump on the ferry and we see uh, the Trollocs on the other side. Um, one of them falls in the deep water. We see what happens to a Trolloc who falls in deep water and, of course, the Fade, who ro- walks up to the dock. Then they get across the river, and Master Hightower, uh, who's the ferry master, is like, all right, well, thanks so much. I'm actually just going to bring the ferry across and go get my son. And Moraine is like, what? No, because they're just going to come back across. So starts, like, the not a whirl, a whirlpool to destroy the um, the ferry. And then Hightower decides to pull a Michael Phelps and jump in to go save his sinking ferry yeah, and dies. And, uh, you know, we're kind of left, I don't know, like I, I was wondering, like with all of that big sequence, is there any impact on your impression of Moraine? Like we've seen Rosamund Pike in Gone Girl, I Care A Lot. She can play a villain very well. And this was a scene where, I mean, is it, 
could she have saved him? Could she have stopped the whirlpool? Was she right to just kind of let him go in without channeling to stop him? Any kind of thoughts on that escape and, yeah, Moraine's actions? She's big picture. You know, that's, that's you know, collateral damage is something she's 100% comfortable with. It's the one thing I'm starting to realize really quickly. Lose a whole village. Like, you look at the very opening fight scene that she has where she basically pulls down every building. She doesn't care. <laughs> These are people's homes, you know. It's big picture what she's there for. She's there to save things. She's there to... Save the world, not save the few, right? And her exact, I believe, statement right after that is like, you know, this was his choice kind of mentality. He went back. It was stupid he did. She doesn't... Uh, I think one thing that you don't see from her until maybe a little bit later, but not even much, is empathy. She cares uh, pretty much about land, that's it. And, uh, yeah, I, I that was a bit of a shocker early on. She seemed really caring earlier, but... Yeah, she just killed him and she's kind of like, he's an idiot. <laughs> this is how it is. I don't know. And so far, um, the Trollocs are one thing that is really weird. That They're kind of, they were so quickly into the show and I thought they'd be so much later into the show. Now they're just gone. <laughs> it's so weird. <laughs> so then we get across the river. We have like Perrin being kind of, you know, a little bit Team Moraine and that he understands like Hightower did this himself. It wasn't Moraine's fault. Uh, and we meet back up with the crew when they're kind of around the fire. So this is their first time out of the village, like, ever. They're having some s'mores and chit-chats around the fire. They're talking about, like, what if one of them is the dragon? We get some great Matt quips. You, I, I don't think it's... It's pretty clear how I feel about Matt Coffin. One of my faves, of course, was... I heard the dragon's going to have wings. Looking around at you lot, I don't see a feather. And uh, then everyone kind of falls asleep around the fire Maureen comes wakes Egwene up and Maureen talks to her about the three oaths uh so she basically says to speak no word that is not true to make no weapon for another man to kill and that you will not use the one power as a weapon except um in defense of your life the life of your warder or the life of another is what we learn so we had talked about these three oaths um and in the trailer those had been shortened, right? It was just the, the last one, especially, that you'll not use the one power as a weapon. Mm. And that's kind of what we were going into in episode one. But now we learn that there's a caveat because you can defend yourself, you can defend yeah. your warder, or you can defend someone else who could who could be injured. So you have to kind of like feel that threat. And then we, you know, we see uh, Egwene kind of learning to channel just by looking at that. And we get a little bit of a river metaphor, which harkens us back to you know, one of the opening scenes in episode one where uh, Be Strong Egwene pushes her into the river, she surrenders to the river, and there we go. So continuing metaphor, if that wasn't obvious enough for you. And then she goes uh, over to Rand and gives him a little, a little nose nuzzle. <laughs> and uh, Rand is like, hey, fuck off. I'm, I want to be alone for a little bit. So you can kind of see him withdrawing from, from Egwene. Uh, obviously, after some of their conversations. But that little fireside chat, um, the group together, Egwene channeling. Thoughts, impressions, confusion regarding oaths. Where are you at with that? The oaths thing is just weird at this point in time. Like, you know, you see the power of it, and it's just, okay, this is, you know, it's like watching Star Wars and being like, come on, Luke, just wipe them all out. Like, why has everyone else got to fight here? Really? Um, Matt, for me, is really, I actually really like his character a lot because 
he's a typical down on his luck guy where he doesn't believe anything good can ever happen to him because nothing good has. He's had to, everything in his life, he's had to beg, borrow, or steal for at this point in time. And his heart's in the right place. So he doesn't believe that something could fall into his lap, whether having this one power is good or bad. So he's just going to do what he does, which is make light of it, pretend like it's not real. And I like that because it's also great to have comedic relief. And in this show, there's so much darkness and so much uncertainty. So it's nice to have that piece. For for Gwen, like it's pretty obvious to me still this is why she's sheer random my choices. I still consider them both the weakest, which is uh, I think you can't build a character. Like Nynaeve is the strongest. She always has been from the start of the show for me. But you can't build a character to be the dragon that's the strongest. I don't think. I don't think the character building works that way. So seeing Moraine already take a liking towards her and kind of helping her with that, um, I think that that builds just so much towards it. And I, I think Perrin actually, and these were kind of fantastic. He's withdrawn at certain points in time, but he's obviously going through things. He's also still supportive of other people. Like Heart of Gold, yet literally has had the worst thing happen to him of everybody. Like, you can say that losing your dad or losing whoever was tough, but killing your wife is probably, you know, I'd say it's probably the tippy top of what's going on. But, uh, yeah, no, it's it, it's nice to watch him kind of build up math a little bit right now as a comic relief, yet at the same time going through more internally than, you know, most. So Yeah, and, and speaking of Perrin, you know, we see after Egwene gets snubbed by Rand, we see Perrin at the fire, and he's got this nasty cut on his leg. Yeah. Uh, and then we have that really nice moment between Perrin and Egwene kind of sitting um, at the fire together. And, you know, we saw this in the trailer, but, uh, you know, Perrin turns to her. It's nice to see it in context in the show. And do you think we'll ever go home? And Egwene is just a straight up no. <laughs> and uh, then we go back to Rand and Rand has a little bit. He, he, it's like he needs a lozenge. His throat's a little bit sore. And then he coughs out a fucking bat. Mm-hmm. So like, hello, coronavirus, maybe oh, that's our there, yeah. origin. So we see him have this dream. There's this, there's this man in the dream. Um, there's like this guy with like fire in his eyes and mouth who's, you know, walking towards him. Um, and when Rand wakes up in the morning, there's bats kind of scattered around everyone. And you get the impression that everyone has kind of had this yeah. dream. So... What the fuck? The yeah, bats was poorly timed. The bat thing was poorly timed for this world. Yeah, that's um, that was a shocker for me. I'm sure, even like, even for you. And I mean, at the end of this, I think it's nice to recap what's new and what's from the book and what's from the show from you. But for this, it was a weird shocker. And the show is so dark at some point in time and so light at some point in time. And then you can just you never know what's a dream and what's reality because at this point in time, you know, like beast from beauty and the beast was currently just chasing you with a sword and then there was a whirlpool and now you have a bat coming out of your mouth that's possible <laughs> like everything's but that that was messed up and disgusting but it's the cool part that was what you said the connection all of them all of them went through it and it's weird that no one talked about it it's just kind of like so a bunch of bats died here last night i didn't throw it up did you throw it no, no no i didn't throw it up either right like no one threw these things up like i don't know it's it's just for all the camaraderie that they have, it's so weird that that wasn't the morning focal point around breakfast, right? Yeah, instead what we got was Rand kind of being, well, more than a little bit snippy with Moraine, right? Like, he got pissed. Yeah. And, 
He's scared. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, he's up there and he, he kind of like took a little stab at land too, which, you know, don't come at my Alamandragoran. Um, you know, what does a man do with the White Tower other than become an errand boy for Aes Sedai? Is like what equipped at him as they're getting ready to saddle. And I just, like, I really loved Maureen's reaction to this. He's like, you know what? Fuck you then. You want to follow us? Follow us. You want to go to the White Tower? Yeah. You want to, like, figure this out? Come along. Otherwise, I'm not putting up with your, like, your shit anymore and your bratty behavior. Goodbye. Yeah. And for me, that was just a ginormous foreshadowing. Him coming at land with that, it's just like, cool, so you're going to rip on someone for following somebody around, following a woman around. Okay, you've been doing this your whole life, <laughs> right? And then it's like you are you know, making fun of somebody that would lay their life on the line for somebody else. You would do it in a heartbeat. So it's this weird thing. You're telling me that if that if Gwen wasn't the true, uh, that you wouldn't just become her ward immediately? So that's why I thought like the first thing when I saw that, it was just for me, it was just like touch of the nose, Remember this moment. This was very, very early on. But, yeah, you know, it's fear, though. It's all fear-based. Everything's new. Like you said, these poor little hobbits just left their hole, right? And so everything that they do is brand new. So having a bat coming in your mouth in your dream, I'd be a little defensive, I guess. No. I guess so. Uh, and, of course, uh, Egwene snips at Rand, and she's she's like, you know what? Like, she starts saddling her, her horse. She's like, I'm out of here. And Rand's like, oh, you had one conversation with her, and suddenly you're Team Moraine? whatever and then matt's response is like don't be an ass so matt cawthon the voice of reason basically telling Rand, like i get it i get where you're coming from but like stop being an asshole buddy uh of course one of the lines that we saw from the initial table read i don't know if you remember when we went through that but it was uh my lady does shoot fireballs so we got that line which was really cool to see live and they all kind of grab their saddles and and off they go uh i just really loved this part because it seemed i just love the acting like i love um going at one point brought up how the trollocs killed uh nynaeve and layla and then you, like, we saw Marcus Rutherford, like, Perrin's face, and you just saw the tears in his eyes just by mentioning Layla's name. And yeah, the the banter back and forth between the boys just seemed very natural and, you know. So any any kind of final thoughts on those guys before they jaunted off after Moraine and Lan, who Lan was, like, behind waiting for them because he knew they would be coming? No, I, I think that's why, like, Matt, I think of all of these people, is taking it weirdly in stride better than most. It's kind of a, eh, you know, for lack of a better word, shit's happening again. <laughs> this is my life. Let's roll with it, guys. We, we're we uh, we're out of questions and we're out of luck right now. We're going to do whatever the heck that she wants because, like you said, she spits fireballs. I think it just continues to grow uh, who's scared, who's, you know, willing to go forward, and then who's pushing themselves away like Perrin continuously, you know, like with the Layla thing. That's obviously tough. A secret that he's holding as deep down as you possibly can right now. So that's uh, that's nice because, like, it's a full range of emotion from every character. And you see ones that were previously maybe weaker are now the strong ones, ones that were the strong ones or the weak ones. Ones that were against what everyone was saying is now, like, why don't we just go with the team? And the one that was the big fuzzy teddy bear of the group is now stuck and introverted so it it basically has pulled every single one except for 90 who's not there in a completely 180 of who they are which is really quick into the show which is great uh so from there 
little horseback scene, and then we get to the White Cloaks. So we see these guys now. We hear them introduced as White Cloaks because we didn't know what they were in the intro. There's an older gentleman who, his name is Jeffrey Bornhold. That's the, the Lord Captain of that particular group. He introduces the Questioners. He introduces Eamon Valda, who then get in handsy with our girl Moraine as he pats her down. Um, one thing I wanted to get your thoughts on with respect to this white cloak scene is now we've been told the oaths. We know that they can't speak any word that is not true. So Moraine introduces herself and she says, I am a lady from a fallen house. You're under my care. And everything then she says to, to Valda afterwards, like, but you wouldn't believe me if I told you, describes the Trolloc pretend she doesn't know what it is like it's a very if you if you watch that scene she she doesn't lie um because she can't but i just did it raise any questions for you like she's a lady from a fallen house and she can just like say that any curiosities peaks interests, things that stand out to you from this white cloak scene well, you're a lawyer, and I am do PR, so if people understand how to bend things better than most, she was answering without answering, right? And it was fantastically, and I think the big thing for me was this, this isn't the first time, right? She's been not lying, but telling selective truths her whole, I would say career, because I won't say life, but career that she's been an eyes to die, right? So I, I, it, you could tell it was almost rehearsed. It was like, yeah, here's what I can say to make you believe me. Here's how I can say it, and here's how I can deliver it, and I already know what direction you're going, which is the opposite of what I want. Just clever and rehearsed at this point in time, right? But also, like, the one thing for me was she didn't have a lot of fear of them, which makes me wonder if she's come across this before multiple times, right? Which I assume that she has. But it's kind of like, here, take my ring, and don't worry, I'll chat with them. And it's not like she's casting a spell. It's not like she's changing. She just using her words in a selective tone. So, yeah, it obviously seems like she slipped through those ranks a couple times. Yeah. Um, we get another great landline in here, which landline. is landline. Uh, I'm from the borderlands where men know to keep their hands to themselves lest they lose them. Of course, he, sells, he says this to Valda, who is hand choppy choppy. Um, we learned that eight sisters were sent to uh, Gelden, to deal with the false dragon. And then something that kind of closes off the white cloak encounter is when Bornhald, you know, Maureen winces when, when Valda gets too handsy on her injury. And Bornhald, a white cloak, recommends that she seek the care and aid of an Aes Sedai in Whitebridge because they can heal her. So that's a pretty sharp dichotomy, right? Like we have one of the white cloaks who we've seen burn witches at the stake and then the other one who's like, oh, you know, I said I, but like, they can heal you. Go interact with one of these women. Um, any kind of thoughts on that very extreme juxtaposition between these two white cloaks? One, we learn the the Bornholds of the world are just regular white cloaks. And then the Valda has his own group of, of what they call questioners which is like a separate kind of contingent within that. We see that in the colors, right? The Eamon Valda has the silver shoulder blade thing mm -hmm. and uh, Bornhold had the gold one. So there's, there are different colors, different factions. Anything kind of stand out to you in that? No, I, I can't put a finger on that in the sense that I don't know if it's just like I got the same 
gold, silver thing you did. And I don't understand if it's levels of this religious movement that they have where you can be such a believer or whether they've been forced into this situation or whether they're just kind of the situation that I didn't know if it would take to is you can be an ice die, just stay in your lane. You know, don't let me catch you in the field. Go to the White Tower. Go over there. Go hang out with the rest of them. But just don't go out and don't do this to the general population. So I don't know what. It, it was really weird. And I mean, yeah, it caught me a lot off guard too. But uh, I, I, there's also a good chance it's just someone that doesn't believe in what the rest of the White Cloaks believe, right? So a lot, a lot of different angles you can take for that one. So we leave the White Cloaks. Um, then we get one of my favorite parts of the episode. Uh, and I'm just really happy that they included this. Uh, we get the story of Manetherin. The weep from Manetherin speech. So I'm going to call it like this is this is a reader favorite. So it's chapter nine in Eye of the World. So we actually get it before chapter 10 leave taking. Uh, so when they're they're still in Emmons Field is when we get this chapter in the books. And they put it in the show. And Rafe Judkins has uh, said in an interview, a subsequent interview, that he really had to fight every single person to make sure that the weep from Manetherin speech remained in the show. So we get, you know them breaking out into song on the trail you've been riding all day spirits are a little bit dismal uh you've been on the road at this point i think for about a week you're getting bored everyone breaks into song perrin just like rocks this amazing bass like i'm not very musically inclined but he just like slips in there with like his deep bass voice uh ran doesn't know the beat but slaps his thigh (laughs) And uh, Maureen says it's it's good to remember Manetherin and then basically explains how uh, the two rivers was Manetherin and um, the king, Aemon, uh, and and all of the people of Manetherin stood and defended Manetherin against Trollocs. And they stood for 13 days, 13 days when they were supposed to be getting aid after three. And eventually everyone fell and everyone in Manetherin died except for the women and children who had gone with Eamon's wife. And she channeled and she burned herself out with the power, but she killed every Trolloc. So she consumed so much of the power that um, she died. And, and you know, the ability to, to channel was burned out of her. So as, as a non-book reader who hasn't read the, the impact of those words and doesn't really understand them. I was just wondering how this scene, because it was very disjointed, right? Like we go from white cloaks to everything else, kind of slowed down the pace. There was anything about like Manetherin, like how it sat with you as a viewer. Yeah, I think it was <laughs> the dumb, the layman version of how it sat would be that it's an old folks song that you've been singing your whole life and then someone tells you the actual meaning of it and you're like, that's, so that's what we've been singing about this the whole time? That I'm not actually comfortable singing about that. That sounds terrible, right? <laughs> so uh, that, I mean, I didn't know the value of it to book readers, but a uh, big assumption that uh, Lindsay and I had on it was that um, this is going to play into something later on. I mean... obviously I'm kind of, I'm developing a pattern of how I'm speaking here. Everything early on sets you up. Everything's foreshadowing early on. That's just how this works. But the key major points So talking about this, I feel like we're going to see a loop back to that at some point in time. But um, that, yeah, it's kind of hilarious actually. It kind of like made us think like with Lynn's being a Newfoundlander, we were kind of joking. There's probably a million songs that, you know, 
are absolutely horrendous songs that we've been jigging away and having a good time to. But it's a weird scene. I, I didn't understand, and now it makes a lot more sense, how just out of nowhere it's like, well, the world's been shit. Let's sing. Right? Like... Like the night that Patty Murphy died. Yeah, that's exact. That's exactly it, right? And so it's just it. Yeah, it was kind of weird. And so I, you know, there hasn't been a lot of song otherwise. It's not like they get around the fire every night and Matt brings out a little ukulele and they have a time. So it was strange, but now it makes a lot more sense. We kind of keep going after that. Um, You know, they're sleeping by this rubble. We see them kind of again around the campfire. Uh, Moraine confirms that Valda should notice the seven rings so that he'd killed seven of her sisters. Egwene and Rand have a really great moment where Rand looks at her and just says, like, I could, I can never hate you. And then uh, we get, you know, kind of another snippet of Perrin collecting, like, filling everyone's water bottle. So it just kind of looks like routine traveling stuff. Filling everyone's water bottle, doing his chore. And then we hear the wolfy boys a-wooing. And while Perrin's taking a look at it again, his cut on his leg. And then we see the goodest boy come up and give Perrin's leg a little lick. <laughs> Which, to be fair, as a child, I thought the dog, because they do have a chemical that can, but it actually is harmful to the human body. <laughs> just to be clear on that. That was really weird. Because getting into this, I never, like, leading up to the show, never once have, has it been even discussed how there are different levels. It's kind of like, hey, you're all fighting for the same thing. And so now we've got wind. Now we've got healing. Now we've got wolves. The wolves one is just completely left field, right? And uh, I think his eyes are changing that one too. Do they not? I don't remember in that scene if they change exactly. I think so. But anyways, um, yeah. And then the wolf just licks like blood and just pieces out. And it's like, oh, just take this water on up. Things happen. <laughs> Fight a dollar, right? Like, this makes any sense. Yeah, he just kind of walked away yeah, from that encounter like, and was like, well. Once again, what? this is the same thing as, like, the bat thing. Like, if this shit happens, you go up and be like, so, was just filling up the canteens and a wolf licked my wound on my leg and headed out. And be like, oh, okay, cool. Thanks for sharing, right? <laughs> like, there's a lot of weird holding it in. But maybe that's the whole point of it. Maybe it's all about everyone's scared it could be them, especially as a man, Right. Like, you don't hear a lot of positives. As a woman, you're giving up your life. As a man, you are going to go mentally insane and die, right? Like, those are your two things. So I'd be also maybe holding it in like crazy. But he's just a little too calm, cool, and collected for the whole situation for me. <laughs> Very cute wolves, though. Very, yeah. Very and cute. Really small. Either he's a giant or they have a tiny, it's a coyote, maybe. <laughs> so then we get back to the fire. Everyone's kind of sleeping, except uh, Egwene, who gets woken up by the Merdral. So we look up, and then we see the Merdral there, and we're like, oh, fuck. And Moraine, before this, was really not looking well. She's down for the count. Lan has to, like, throw her up on Perrin's horse because she can't ride herself. Egwene is um, leading Aldeeb, Moraine's horse. And Lan's like, we're going to go to Shadar Logoth, which him and Moraine had talked about earlier. And Moraine's like... Nobody, we're not going there. Like, not a chance. But Trollocs, Merdral, everyone incoming, lands like, we're going to Sh- uh, Shadar Logoth. It's really weird for me to say it like that because I've always just said Shadar Logoth. But I'm trying to channel my land. So Shadar Logoth. They're riding up to it. Uh, the horse that uh, Egwene is on, Bella, kind of rears up as they approach, like, these gigantic walls. They don't want to be there. Don't want to be there. And then all the Trollocs stop chasing them too. And they just like 
don't follow them in. So at least we understand, you know, why Lan is, is leading them to this place. So Trollocs don't enter. We just get uh, Lan being like, this is Shadar Logoth. Like, in we go. Um, they enter the town and it is dead silent. There's no birds. There's no music which is like none of Lauren Balfi's beautiful music that's kind of been the background to these episodes. There's nothing playing. There's no greenery. There's no greenery. It's just stone everywhere. Stone and darkness. There's not even like dead greenery. It's just, no, nothing lives here. Nothing. Except for Twinkies and cockroaches. (laughs) And then we get, you know, Lan explaining that this is Shadar Logoth, which means Shadow's Waiting. It used to be called Eridol. Eridol was actually supposed to be... Um, there for Manetherin at the third day during the Trolloc Wars. But instead of going and helping people, they literally barricaded their entire city with no gates and left everyone in the world during the Trolloc Wars to, like, fend for themselves and whatever. And eventually when people got back into Shadar Logoth, it was just, like, I don't know if you've seen Limetown or, like, listened to the podcast but it's about this town that like just disappears and all the people in it. But that's basically what happened with Shadar Logoth. No. Oh. <laughs> I think it's like Jessica Beale or someone who plays it on the Amazon show. But anyway. Sounds nice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that's basically what happens when they open up Shadar Logoth after this. Is like everyone is gone. Mm-hmm. And not even dead. There's not even skeletons. It's just. No. Well, there's nothing. There's no, there's no chairs. There's no tables. It's just vacancies literally everywhere yeah it is eerie and uh, medievally eerie at the same time right it's like a castle that had just been sacked and everyone had taken everything and killed everyone and no one will ever go back but just that times five thousand for size and then of course we get another great madism because land's explaining all of this and so matt turns to him and goes couple things uh one that's more words than you've said all day perhaps ever and two why did you bring us here? <laughs> so, again, the voice of reason, our young Matt Coffin. Um, you know, Land basically says, don't touch anything. Which, of course... Matt touches something, yeah. You gotta touch the things. So, Matt kind of wakes up and... Uh, well, first, like, Rand goes walking by himself, because why not when you're in this city? What um, a really nice moment between him and Egwene when they're kind of looking out... And giving us a panoramic view of the scope of this city and, like, just kind of, like, seeing the destruction of it. But also, like, understanding that it would have once been, like, this incredible well, the city. Well, like, yeah, like it, would, it was the Rome, right? The Walden Rome. So then, then we get this really nice moment of Egwene holding Rand's hand and the two of them kind of looking at the city together. Um, like, I get why Rand would want to go wander about. It's like, you know, traveling through Venice during the pandemic. Like, you have an opportunity to take in architecture like this without any other tourists. Jump on it. You're like a little farm kid who hasn't been let off the sheep leash. Yeah. <laughs> And then we get uh, Matt and Perrin. And I don't know if you remember some of the stills that we went over, but there was the picture of Matt and Perrin and that kind of like shadow in the background. So it's now, now we know it was Matt and Perrin having this really lovely conversation about Layla and the dagger with Lan taking care of Moraine in the background. So Matt has this knife made by Layla. They talk about tool versus weapon, which I guess is something that Layla had talked about a lot. And that the first time Matt had ever had to use it as a weapon was during the Trolloc attack. And we find out that Matt didn't just leave the two rivers 
in with his sisters in the care of his parents. Perrin confirms that his his parents are going to go check on Matt's sisters and Egwene's parents are going to go check on Matt's sisters. So hoping, you know, to alleviate, I guess, a little bit of guilt that Matt feels. But I think you can really see how haunted Matt is by that. Um, and having, I don't know, um, any kind of impressions of the conversation. Like, we don't see a lot of Matt and Perrin together. And I just thought that this was a really nice moment and bequeathing Layla's dagger to Perrin um, without really knowing kind of the impact of, of that loss. Well, one of the opening scenes we get, one of the early scenes we get is Perrin being a big brother. The money that him and Rand give up, right? Very big brother to Matt, which is kind of weird because Matt's being a big brother to his sisters or a parent to his sisters. But yeah, I mean, you can see that it's funny. Um, when they discuss that, the first thing that pops into my mind is like, so parents just like, don't worry, my parents are going to take care of you. Well, who's taking care of your parents? Right? Like everyone's just kind of trying to make key. So it, it really showcases, and I mean this in a very positive way, but he is the weak link very early on. He is more emotionally vested and not as into the trip, if you will, or into this journey as much as I need to get home and check on things. He's not seeing the big picture yet. Everyone else is like, I need to see this through. Oh, everyone else. Everyone's coming around to like, I need to see this to the end. I need to know what the hell this is all about. He's like, still in that, I, I gotta go home. Like, they, they need me, right? This is kids. And I mean, keeping in mind that none of them have children. And this, he's the one, only one close, that's close to being a parent. If I basically is a parent to these two sisters, right? But it is nice to see that camaraderie and that big brother thing come back around um, for parent because he's kind of been sheltered and uh, tucked away this whole time until that moment, right? Uh, once again, everyone's snoozing around like the little fire, this time in the building in Shadar Logoth. We see Matt wake up. So we've seen Egwene's kind of like, not dream sequence, but we've seen her go off with Moraine. We've seen Rand's dream sequence. And now we see Matt get up and just go for a little wander. Kind of like a shadowy thing that leads him inside this building. And then we see him, which we've seen um, in that like little clip of him opening the box and pulling out this dagger that has a ruby in the hilt. And we don't really know what happens to that dagger at this point. And then we watch a horse become like the other rebels. So we kind of figure out, I guess, what happens. Uh, they become the ground that people have been walking on. So that's fucking horrifying. Um, and then Mashadar is what the black stuff is called. That just kind of takes over the city. And then the chaos and eruption of people running around and fleeing. Um, and the great split. The great, the great split. The great yes. We get uh, <laughs> uh, hoist me up by Rand. And then Matt going, why don't you hoist me up? And then the uh, the audio clip that we'd listened to so many months ago of Egwene and Perrin. Egwene turning to Perrin and saying, are you ready? And Perrin just shaking his head instead of the audible no. And then we watched them leap from a cliff, which is like four times higher than the cliff she, had, she got pushed off of during the yeah, Women's Circle Initiation. <laughs> and yeah, so this whole, you know, running sequence, like division... Moraine waking up and turning to Lan and saying, you've killed us. Uh, anyway, just kind of like all of the mishmash of action, thoughts, impressions, surprise, Mashadar. Yeah, I did not. I I think the biggest surprise is that unless they had heard of this before, it was just a shadow. What was really scary about that shadow leading up to it, right? Like, I mean, the horse thing. But like, 
you know, it's just the thing of fear. I, the thing I liked about this scene, the thing I liked the most about it is the strong became, the weak became the strong yet again, right? So you've got uh, Egwene, like, getting Perrin to jump, whereas you th- would have think originally it'd be the other way around, like, you know, grabbing her hand and stuff like that. And, you know, Matt making light of the situation once again is something that really, it's really great to have that piece in, in this little puzzle here. And then uh, it's funny, the thing I liked about the Moraine, uh, Moraine part and uh, land part is, she's made all the decisions up until this point right and now he's made one it's like we're dead this is it like <laughs> nothing to do with the fact that he got her to safety away from the trial like, she doesn't know anything it's just like you killed us well done this is why you make no decisions in this relationship this is why i lead the party but i and i the, the choosing of to separate just builds a story so well right like the star-crossed lovers thing gets even bigger which is fantastic story yeah, writing for that before time right oh like, yes, like the, yes. Like we don't we don't we won't talk about that movie <laughs> the uh the darkness thing was really funny because it just like for matt it's just one more notch in the shitty belt of life that he's had right like why him why me kind of thing everything that happens to him is literally worse than it happens to anybody else at this point in time. This guy has been dealt the worst hand of life. That I, yeah, if I were him now, I'd, I'd be wanting to go the hell home too. Right? And home is hell for him. So it's just, I don't know. So a um, couple questions with that. Do you think that Mashadar would have come into the city if Matt didn't pick up the dagger? Yeah, I mean, that's the big piece, right? I think so. Yeah, I mean... Otherwise, there'd be people just roaming around, right? Like, there gotta be. I mean, there's not much looting there. I guess you could loot for rock, but um, yeah, I mean, like that's what you're looking and you're seeing. You're seeing, okay, you've touched. You know, don't touch anything in this room. Like, on Indiana Jones steps on one thing and the whole thing goes to shit, right? So I think that it's meant to foreshadow that he's chosen the darkness and created the darkness, and it's just all about building on the fact that he's different than everybody else he can't help himself whereas everyone else can help themselves and it just showcases that darker side of him and the show <laughs> there there are different points of escape one thing and it i couldn't get it out of my head was we have you know a great and parent who get like they end up in this little shallow spot and they're able to like basically walk out of the city and then we see <laughs> matt and rand grab a log which, unlike Titanic, Kate Winslet, I'm looking at you, it can fit both of them. And then they just, like, slowly flutter kick their way out into, like, this big river. And we're like, we hope for the best. <laughs> and then Moraine and Lan are able to ride out. So, like, everyone kind of takes yeah. different ways out of the city, which was hilarious to me. But, yeah, uh, like, I don't know. It's, and, like, and not, like... And it's not like they took different roads. Like, oh, I went out this door, you went out that door. It's like, I'm at 800 feet above, I went into a river, and I just took... And I mean, like, we're brain land, like, idiots, this way. <laughs> like, this, I, yeah, that, that was the strangest part of it all. It's like, how did somebody... And when they were jumping, it was just ridiculously high, right? And, like, everyone else, then all of a sudden, but at the same level, the other couple turned, the other Matt and Rand turned the other way, and they just went straight into the river. It's like... <laughs> All right, at some point in time, they smoked an escalator and just shot them to the top. Something was going on. Yeah, I mean, we see, like, a Gwen and Perrin running upstairs and stuff, and it's like, why would you go higher? Oh, it's a horror, but, part of the horror yeah. movie, 
many stairs. No, no. So then we see them kind of, you know, we, we leave Rand and, Rand and Matt flutter kicking their way to safety. Uh, Gwen and Perrin we see walking out. And then we get Lan and Moraine. And of course, one of, oh God, this moment just gave me so much joy. We see a blade held to Lan's throat. And it's an aggressive looking blade. Like that thing's got like waves on it. It's long. That does not look like a Layla made blade. And it's a knife held to Lan's throat. And we turn. It's our girl Nynaeve who is somehow alive. And she says, if you don't take them to me right now, I'll slit your throat. End of episode. Smash to black. Were you surprised? There's a lot of plot holes in that. Like, the amount that they've had to go through. And then she's just there on the other side of this. Like, she just went through the darkness. It was no problem. She got away from the Trollocs. It was no issue. She's never left town before. Not a problem. I'll just track I'll just track down land. How hard can that be, right? Like, I think there's some plot holes for me that I wasn't uh, too pleased with. Uh, I, I will say that it didn't make a lot of sense. And, I mean... To this point, we've seen him just like, you know, he's been in sleep and been woken up by a noise that's 500 feet out, right? But no, she just rolled up behind him. Like, so, and I know that they're made fun of and that happens down the road or road, but yeah, I, I didn't, I didn't like that part of the story tie-in. It wasn't a, a really great part for me. I think it just left a little too many holes for that just to be, her to be a-okay while everyone else is just going through an absolute shitstorm. So. so I will say uh, in the books... Nynaeve tracks them to a different part. So she... she didn't go through the gates of hell. Yeah, <laughs> she actually uh, tracked them before they got to Shadar Logoth. Well, yeah, because that's the thing. She gets to Shadar Logoth. And she... What? what like So the storyline now is that she just rolled in. She's like, oh, vacant town. Well, this is kind of strange. I'll just make my way through it. No worries whatsoever, right? Oh, and by the way, it's walled up all the way around, but I know where all the little holes are to get in and out of this place because I've never left my hometown before. <laughs> and I'm just going to sneak up on a ward who's literally trained to be sneaky on his own and to be on defense. So he's a sheepdog. He's trained to be on defense 24-7. So, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I think they, they could have tied that just a little bit sharper. Um, and, I mean, I know she's going to get a little bit better from the episodes I've seen, but... Not right now. She's not that good right now. No. <laughs> um, I mean, like, we can see why they did it for the drama of it, right? Like, you just end oh, the episode yeah, yeah, yeah. with Nynaeve, yeah. and there it is. But, uh, yeah, I think it's it was certainly nice that they released kind of the, the three clump together. Because, of course, and, and we'll talk about this in our next episode, of course, the, the opening of episode three explains a little, a little bit about what happens but we'll talk about that next time um so again we're gonna leave cordials for this this chunk of three to episode three uh but any kind of final thoughts feelings rankings i guess like how did this episode episode two compare to episode one when you watched them back to back how did it was it a different tone did you feel better like the the i don't know like in terms of ranking yeah, those first two episodes, what did this leave you with? I don't think you can rank them because the first one is all about building character, right? And then the second one's all about breaking down the character you think you know. And I think that, so I, I like 
you know, obviously you're going to like, the, as further as this goes, you're going to keep liking more. You know, there's going to be ones down the road you're going to hate. But in the first 10 episodes, the 10th one's probably going to be your favorite because you're learning more every single episode. But the thing that I liked is that already so early on, people are shifting, right? The strong, like I've been saying, the weak is becoming the strong, the strong, the strong is becoming the weak. Um, you're seeing a lot more character depth. And I mean, the darkness of this one was great, right? Like, it showcases a lot more than, um, you know, the Trollocs were fantastic, but really that's barbaric. So it's like a sword's killing you. Like I said, it's Beast from Beauty and the Beast, but it's still a sword that's killing you. Now you're seeing that this is basically the Australia of the fictional world. Everything in this world is meant to kill you. So I, I think that um, I like this episode a lot. I had a lot more questions at the end of this episode, and I uh, I think, yeah, the, the loopholes and some of the... Some of the areas were a little bit different. So for you, though, um, what was missing in the episode or what did you not like or like from the previous two for the introduction of these characters? Because we know them now. Don't get me wrong. There's going to be new layers added in, but we know them, so we know who they are. Could they have done a little bit without you giving anything away to me? Um, could they have done a little bit better job or are these characters portrayed so far as they have been in the book? It's really interesting watching all of this from someone who's read the series so many times. From a billion readers? Yeah. <laughs> Just because, like, so much has changed from the books, but ultimately who the characters are has not changed. Mm -hmm. And what I really love about what the show is doing is that characters that you don't get the perspective of in the first book, because we've talked about this, how it's very heavily, like, 90% of the first book is told through one character's yes. perspective. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's really refreshing and wonderful to see some of these other characters fleshed out into like who we know they are. Of course, that means building in some origin stories that we might not have known before, but really getting a handle on these, on these characters and introducing them, you know, to, to never readers who probably like, you would probably know more about some, I'm not trying to be very vague about who everyone is. So I'm talking in circles a bit, but you probably know more about these characters than someone who has finished Eye of the World, like the first book, just because we're getting so much more perspective and time with them and getting like these quips from them and these one-liners and, and yeah, just like spending a little bit of time in their head and, and like really seeing through their gaze. Uh, so I am not, I really get frustrated, honestly, when when people who have been reading the series, either for a short time or for a long time, can't let go of the changes from the book because it's an adaptation. And ultimately, like what I want to see more than anything else is the characters. Mm -hmm. Like this is a 15 fucking book series. Like I would not have stuck around for 21, 22 years now if the characters didn't compel me. And that's what I'm here for. And I'm really appreciating and enjoying these changes. Like the interaction with the White Cloaks we don't see that in the books. We don't see, like, burning of Aes Sedai at the stake. We don't see, you know, just, like, these little moments, like, on horseback. You don't hear the music. You don't hear the songs. You don't, like, you don't see Master Hightower drown. Like, there's so many little moments throughout this episode that were changed. But I, do I agree with every single change? No, but at the same time, this is season one. The, the season isn't done yet. I don't know where they're taking us. And I'm excited because for the first time since 2013, when the final book was published, I have, to, I have time to speculate again. I have time to wonder again. I am 
just as knowing the destination. There's this Brandon Sanderson who writes the Stormlight Archives, the Cosmere. Journey before destination is kind of a staple of the Stormlight Archives. Um, and that's what I feel like we're on right now. Like, I know the destination. I know where all of this is going to end. But the journey is so compelling. And I'm so gripped by it. I mean, two episodes in, every character has gotten a block, a block built at the same time as another lead character, right? No one's... We're not ahead. I mean, Nynaeve is probably the only one that's a little bit further back. That has that little bit of clout that you don't understand. Or that's a, as a never reader right now. But I love how they're all being built. It's just a Lego block of tower together. It's not like we're learning about one while the other three are just hanging out in the weeds on the side, right? And I think that that, yeah, I mean, from what you're talking about the book, you can't, you can't not, right? It's just not possible to build those new characters. There's going to be, well, you said however many characters there are in this book series. So there's lots more to add, but you need to, if these are going to be the lead characters, you need to understand them very, very, very early on and understand their early on roots of who they are, right? Absolutely. All right, uh, that's going to wrap our coverage of episode two, Shadows Waiting. Thanks so much for listening, friends. You can find Feathering Mountain Podcast on all major podcasting platforms. If you're able to, leave a review. You can also find us on Instagram, on Twitter, other places, probably. <laughs> I don't know. It's all linked in the description. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can contact us on Discord. We have a small little nook at the bottom of the Wheel Read server. Um, in the alternative, you can email us at featherandmountainpodcast at gmail.com and send your hate mail to don't touch the dagger mat at oops, fucked that one up.com. Thanks. We'll see you next time for episode three. Bye!